Father, again, we're thankful for, uh, Lord, the privilege that it is to gather together as your people, to come together and be reminded of your love for us, to come and be reminded of our great high priest, whoever lives to intercede for us, who pleads his wounds on our behalf, that so that when Satan does tempt us to despair and reminds us of the guilt within, and Lord, the guilt within we acknowledge is deep and the guilt within is great, but upward we do look and see Christ there who's brought an end to all of our sins. So Lord, thank you for a Savior who represents us and who makes us righteous before you based on his life for us. And so, Lord, our prayer is now as we turn our attention to Scripture that in mercy you would see fit to continue to speak to us. And so God, give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, you can Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the 26th Psalm. Psalm 26. Um, if you've been here, you know we're in a, a brief season right now where we're going through a section of the Psalm. So we started with Psalm 24, and we're going to go all the way this time through Psalm 32. So after today, we'll have six weeks left in the Psalms. And just about every time... I preach out of the Psalms, I remind you that the Psalms were given to us by God to show us how to pray to God and to show us how to praise God during all the different circumstances of life. And so the idea is no matter what we're going through as Christians, our lives are to be oriented toward God. And so that means that when we're going through hardship, when we're going through seasons where we're in the valley, we're called to lay our burdens out to God. And we're called in the middle of the hardship to declare our faith to God. Sometimes through the tears to declare our faith in God. And on the other hand, when we're on the mountaintop, when everything in life is great, we can't imagine how it could be any better. In those seasons, we're called to praise God and to give thanks to God. And so the Psalms show us how to commune with God during all of those different times. There's a commentary that was written on the Psalms, and the title of the commentary is Language for All the Seasons of Life. And I like that title because that's what the Psalms are. They give us language that we can use to pray to God during all the seasons of life. So you can find Psalms that will help you pray and pray to God and praise God when you're in those spring times of joy. And you can find Psalms that will help you know how to pray to God when you're, you're in those winter times of suffering. And Psalm 26 is a different kind of psalm in that this is a prayer or a psalm of vindication, which means that David wrote this psalm while he was being slandered. He has enemies who have started a smear campaign against him. They're hurling all sorts of false accusations against David, and it feels like David is not being able to defend himself against their charges. So they're trying to malign his character. They're trying to cast a shadow over David's integrity. And so what David does in Psalm 26 is he comes before God. He comes before God and he lays out his case to God. Okay, so he's going to come and he's going to lay out before God what he's being accused of and lay out to God the mistreatment that he's facing. And I would just pause and say, just the fact that David does this tells us something important about God. The fact that David feels like he can come and lay out the charges, lay out his case against God, tells us 
that God cares how his people are being treated. That's so important. You remember, those of you who were here last Sunday night, in 1 Kings, we were looking at the story of a man named Naboth. And Naboth was this righteous man who just so happened to own a, a good piece of real estate right next to the royal palace in Jezreel. And the king of Israel decided he wanted that piece of real estate for himself. And so his wife Jezebel hatches this wicked plan where she arranges this whole situation so that false charges are brought against Naboth. Naboth is falsely accused of blasphemy and he's falsely accused of treason. And because of the false charges, Naboth is found guilty and he's executed. So righteous Naboth is falsely accused. There's this miscarriage of judgment. Naboth is murdered and it seems like no one notices. No one will ever know. It's a secret plan. No one will realize what's happened, right? Wrong. We find out in the story that God knew. God was aware that Naboth was being mistreated so that God actually pronounces a curse. He pronounces judgment on the royal couple that mistreated Naboth. So make sure you get this. There's, there's no promise in the Bible that says, if you will follow Jesus, it will keep you from mistreatment. In fact, you almost get the opposite in the Bible. You think of Paul saying, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Or you think of Jesus saying, do you remember how Jesus worded it? Jesus said that servants can't be expected to be treated or can't expect to be treated any better than the master. And his point is that if our master, if Jesus was maligned and if Jesus was persecuted, if that's how they treated the master, then how should the followers, how should his servants expect to be treated? And Jesus' point is that his servants shouldn't expect to be treated any better than the master was. So make sure you get that. There is no promise in the Bible that if you follow Jesus, it will insulate you against mistreatment or it will insulate you against ever being slandered or it will insulate you against ever being maligned. There's no promise like that in the Bible, but there is the promise in the Bible that when God's people are mistreated, God sees and God knows and God cares. And there's the promise that one day God will make it right. Now, think of the story of Israel when they were in bondage to Egypt. And you know how God sent Moses in. They're, they're slaves in Egypt. They're being horribly mistreated. So God sends Moses in to free them from bondage. But listen to the premise for that. Listen to what God says. This is Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. Do you, you get that? God says that He saw their mistreatment. He heard their cries. And He was aware of their sorrows. Or I'll give you a New Testament example of that. Listen to what James says in James chapter 5, verse 4. God speaking through James says, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. 
See what's happening? What James is saying was happening is the, the, the employee, employers were defrauding the employees. They weren't paying them the wages that they had promised. And this is in a day where many people are day workers. They work for a day and they get paid for that day and they need the money for that day to buy food for their families. But the employers aren't giving them their money. And so these folks are suffering and they're crying out to God. And James says, God hears their cries. And he even uses that title. He is the Lord of Sabaoth. And that's a title in the Old Testament. Jehovah Sabaoth is the militant name of God. This is the God who leads the angelic armies. This is the God who rules the host of heaven. This is the God who goes to battle on behalf of his people. And James is saying that's the God we trust in. And, and that's why so often the Bible points us to this truth to stabilize our hearts when we're going through mistreatment. In other words, one of the things the Bible does is say, hey, Christian, you can't allow your heart to fill with bitterness and you can't allow yourself to be overtaken by a spirit of vengefulness when you're being mistreated. Why? Well, several times in the Bible, God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. In other words, God, God makes the promise that he sees the mistreatment of his people that he knows the mistreatment of his people, and one day he will act on behalf of his people. Okay, well, that's what's underlying David's prayer for vindication. David is being mistreated. David is being falsely accused. And he's going to take his case to God. So let's read this psalm together. Psalm 26. It's a short psalm, just 12 verses. So let's read it in its entirety. Psalm 26. Verses 1 through 12, David writes, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I've also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I've not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence. So I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hand is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregation, I will bless the Lord. So we're going to walk through this psalm under five main headings. Here's the first one. First, there's a cry for vindication. Again, just the opening lines of the psalm. He says, vindicate me, O Lord. And you know, the word Lord there in all caps is God's covenant name. It's Yahweh. He's saying, O Yahweh, vindicate me. He's asking God to step to his royal seat in judgment. So David's being slandered and he's losing the battle in the court of public opinion. 
And so what David's doing here is he is appealing to a higher courtroom. David is appealing to the one judge, the only judge ultimately whose verdicts matter. And he's asking God to step to his seat in judgment. You, you, find, you find the writers of the Bible doing this sort of thing so often. I'll just give you a few examples. In 1 Corinthians, you find that the Apostle Paul is being torn apart by some of the people in Corinth. There, there are people with bad motives who have gotten into the church and philosophy and all sorts of ideas have gotten involved. And they are doing their best to tear Paul's reputation apart. It's like, it's like they have put Paul under the microscope and they are picking apart everything about him. They're criticizing his personality. They're criticizing his preaching style. They're questioning his motives. They're casting doubt upon his... I mean, everything is being ripped apart. It's not fair. None of it's right. And so what does Paul say in response to their judgments? Listen to what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Do you see what Paul's saying? It's like Paul saying, you can keep passing your judgments on me all that you want, but it's not your judgment that matters. In fact, Paul says, it's not even my judgment of my life that matters. Paul says the only judgment that really matters is the Lord's judgment. So he's casting himself on God's judgment. Well, that's what David's doing in this psalm. David does this in several psalms. In fact, if you want to turn back a few pages in your Bible, back to Psalm chapter 7, David does something very similar. Psalm 7, I'll just read a few verses. It's a very similar sort of plea for vindication. Starting in verse 6. David says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you've commanded. So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity Within me. You see what David's doing? He's asking God to rise in judgment. It's, it's like he's asking God to come back into his courtroom and to climb the stairs and to take his seat upon his judgment throne. And David assures us that when God takes his seat for judgment, no one gets an exemption. All the peoples, David says, are gathered before God when he sits down for judgment. And David is convinced that when God sees the evil that these men are doing, when God sees how these people are treating David and God's people, that God's anger is going to be aroused as judge. And that's a good thing, I would add. You don't want a judge who never gets angry. You don't want a judge who can listen to horrible crimes committed against a child by some child abuser and remain unfazed by it. You want a judge who, when he confronts evil and oppression, his anger is aroused. And that's what David is counting on. He's saying, God, when you see the evil being done to your people, arise as judge. Let your anger be kindled against the enemies of your people. So David can't defend himself. He's in a situation where he cannot defend himself. 
And so he is asking God to come to his defense. And I would just remind you, Christian, we're able to pray this same sort of prayer. You find yourself being slandered. You find yourself being falsely accused. And you're not even given the opportunity to respond. You can lay your case out before the judge of the universe. And you can ask God for vindication. That's what David's doing here. Here's the second part. Second section is summed up by the word examination. Look at the second half of verse 1 into verse 2. Second half of verse 1 into verse 2, he says, For I've walked in my integrity. I've also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. Do you notice all the examination words there? David says, examine me, prove me, try me, or that means test me. It's like he is inviting God to come put him to the test. Examine me, God. He is laying his life bare before God. There's nothing he's hiding. He is, his life, in other words, is an open book before the Lord. And when God examines him, what is David convinced that God will find? There's two phrases he uses at the end of verse 1. Here's what he thinks God will find. David says, I've walked in my integrity and I have also trusted in the Lord. You see the two things that David is convinced God will see when he looks in his life? He's convinced that God will see that he has trusted the Lord. So he's convinced that God will find genuine faith and he's convinced that God will find that he has walked in integrity. That means he's convinced that God will see that he has lived a faithful life. So two sides. David's convinced that when God looks at his life, God will see genuine faith and God will see a life of faithfulness. Not a life of perfection, but a life of faithfulness. And I would add, the Bible always marries those two things together, doesn't it? The Bible always marries together genuine faith and a life of faithfulness. In fact, the Bible would say that if I claim faith, but there's no faithfulness toward God in my life, my claims to faith are empty. In fact, how does James word it? Faith without works, James says, is dead. Meaning all my claims to faith don't mean anything if, if the faith I claim to have doesn't produce any practical works of seeking God and pursuing God and obeying God. And David is saying here that, that he has both. He has a life of genuine faith and there is evidence of faithfulness. The, the word that he uses is that he has walked in his integrity. What does that word integrity mean? It's literally a word that means, my mic is acting up this morning, so give me a second. It's a word that literally means wholeness. So David is saying, I've walked holy. Maybe the best way to think of it is that David is he's making the claim that his life is not partitioned out. You know how you'll go into museums sometimes and they'll have those little ropes to partition things off? That means this is an area you're allowed in, this is an area you're not allowed in. Well, David is saying that he hasn't partitioned his life like that. So, so there's not a religious section in his life where God's included, that's his life for Sundays. But then there's a different sort of partition in his life that's his life at work on Monday through Friday. And then there's a different part. Lord's certainly not allowed in that one. That's what he does with his buddies on the weekends. 
That David is saying his life's not divided up. There is a wholeness to his life. There's a consistency so that his whole life, every aspect of it, is lived with the desire to honor the Lord. He's walked in his integrity. Okay, but but is there anything about David's prayer that kind of strikes you as odd? Because there is to me. Because here David is coming before God in this prayer, and David is saying, Lord, examine my life and see that I've walked in integrity. I mean, I'm a Christian, but I... I don't know that I'd come before the Lord and say, God, come examine me and look at my integrity. In fact, there's something about it that doesn't even feel right. It feels like it might be prideful to pray something. It does to me anyway. Does that feel like, if I prayed that, I feel like there would be something prideful in me that would be rising up. So what is David doing here? Is David saying, God, come look at my righteousness and be impressed at my integrity? We know that's not what David's doing, right? Because the whole message of the Bible is that I guess just to quote Paul in Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one. And that's the whole theme of the Bible, is that that even the best things that we do, which is true for David too, even the best things that we do are so tainted by twisted motives inside that God says in Isaiah that the best of our works are like filthy rags before God. So if I'm trusting in my righteous record before God, I'm in trouble. My righteousness would never measure up. And that's why the the good news of the Bible is my righteousness doesn't measure up, but there is a righteousness that measures up. We sang about it earlier. It's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Jesus came as the eternal God, and he lived a life where he cleared every moral hurdle. He passed every test. He checked every box of God's law. He met the standard of God's righteousness. And so that while while my record is at best checkered, Jesus' record before the Father is flawless. There was never a second of Jesus' life where he didn't perfectly love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. There was never a second of Jesus' life where he did not love his neighbor as himself. So he has a perfect record. And the core message of the gospel is that for everyone who gives up living for themselves, hear me this morning, if you will repent, give up living for your sin, and give up trusting in your own righteousness before God. And if you will instead put your trust in what Jesus has done for you, there's actually a record exchange that happens where your checkered record that is chock full of sin was counted as being put on Jesus' account at at the cross, and he took the penalty for it. And on the other hand, Jesus' flawless record is put on your account so that God the Father actually accepts you. He actually sees you as if you lived Jesus' perfectly righteous life. Okay, so don't understand David here to be going, Lord, check out my record. Once you see how I've lived, you'll accept me as righteous. Because the consistent theme of the Bible is if if you're trusting in your record, you're not going to come anywhere close to hitting the mark. Our only hope is to trust in Jesus' record. We started singing it this morning, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Because that's what David is counting on. But for all those who put their trust in Jesus, 
that trust in Jesus is accompanied by new desires and new hungers and a new lifestyle. Not a perfect lifestyle, but a changed lifestyle. A life that really wants to bend in every area to the authority of Jesus. And that's what David's pointing to here. So he is inviting God to examine his life because David is convinced that God will in David see a genuine faith that bleeds out into every area of his life. So just as I close this point, let me ask you a question. Could you pray this prayer? Would this prayer be true of you? Could you come before God and say, Lord, my life is an open book before you. You see it as it is. And Lord, I know when you look at my life, you're going to see a genuine faith and you're going to see a life of faithfulness that matches my claims of faith. Because if there's a disconnect between those two things, something is awry with your claim to faith. Okay, so David invites examination. Here's the third thing. Number three, David makes a statement about his motivation. Look at verse three. David says, For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. Now think about what he's doing here. He just said in the verses before this that he was walking in his integrity before the Lord. Okay, but what motivated David? What kept David moving forward? Was David's focus on how good he was living? Is that what David's eyes were fixed on? What does David say his eyes were fixed on? David says, my eyes are set on your loving kindness. Y'all hear that word so much in Psalms that you should, as soon as I read it, you should know what it means. Remember, loving kindness is the translation of the Hebrew word hesed. And that is the word for God's covenant commitment to his people. This is the word for God's loyal love. I've given you the Ralph Davis quote that, that uh, hesed is love with super glue on it. God has bound himself to his people. God is fiercely loyal to his people. And that's what it is that kept David moving forward. His eyes were fixed on God's unshakable love. And you see why that's important, right? Yeah, David was doing his best to live a life of integrity. But if you've ever read through First and Second Samuel, what was David's life actually like? Man, you read First and Second Samuel. David struggled with all kinds of sin. You know that David at a point gave into lust. You know there was a season of his life where David gave into fear and discouragement. All sorts of sin struggles crept up in David's life. So what was it that kept David moving forward through those struggles? And this is the answer. What kept David moving forward is his eyes stayed fixed on God's loyal love for his people. And you realize, if God's loyal love motivated David, we should be even more motivated. Because we see God's love more clearly than David could have ever dreamed of. Because we're on the other side of the cross. We see just how great God's love for His people really is. The way Paul says it in Romans is that God has now demonstrated His love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is how great His love is. God loved us when we were still sinners. Or the way Paul says it in Ephesians 2 is that God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, what did He do? 
Paul says, he made us alive together with Christ. God didn't wait for us to clean up our act and turn to Jesus before he started loving us. God loved us before we were born. God loved us when we were at our ugliest. And it was his love that compelled him to forgive our sins and make us his and bring us to life. And so the idea is, if, if God loved me at my worst, then as a Christian, can't I trust that God is going to continue to love me even now? That even as I stumble and struggle now in the Christian life, God is not giving and removing His love because God's love was never based on my performance. His love was based on His covenant. It was based on His commitment to His people. So David says, my eyes are fixed on your loving kindness. And then he says, I have walked in your truth. And that word behind truth, it can be translated one of two ways. It can either be translated truth or it can be translated as faithfulness. And most translations lean toward faithfulness. And I think that's probably the right way, being on the heels of loving kindness. I think David is saying, my eyes are fixed on your loving kindness and I walk. Every step I take, I take that step depending on your faithfulness toward your people. So that's what David is depending on. By the way, that's why he set up in verse 1, I will not slip. That's David saying, I'm not going to buckle. I'm not going to wobble. And the reason I'm not going to wobble is, is because my feet are planted on the solid ground of your loyal love and your faithfulness. That's his motivation. Fourth thing, David says a word about his associations. So what happens in this next little section is David points to a key piece of evidence that proves where his loyalties really did lie. So he's going to describe the groups of people that he was attracted to, and he's going to describe the groups of people that he stayed away from. Or maybe think of it like magnets. What if you had a group of, I don't know, eight or ten magnets in the palm of your hand? Would all of those magnets be drawn together? Well, it depends on the direction of the poles, right? Have you ever tried to push two magnets together with the poles in the same direction? They don't push, they don't attract. What do they do? They push each other away. So some of those magnets, depending on the direction, some would be drawn in, others would be repelled away. Well, that's how David's going to describe his life here. Because the primary commitment of David's life was to the Lord. There was a certain group of people that David attracted. And then there were others that David repelled. So look at verses 4 and 5. Here's the first group. David says, I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. So who all would David not sit with? Idolatrous mortals, hypocrites, evildoers, and the wicked. So the short answer is, David would not align himself with people who hated God. He's not going to join in with the assembly of evildoers. In other words, David's not going to go to the groups of people who make sport of breaking God's law. The people who break God's law as part of their fun, that is not the group of people that David is going to be attracted to. And that word sit, by the way, it's not just talking about loose associations. 
to sit with someone in this world implied friendship and it implied fellowship. These are the people that you share your life with. And David is saying, my commitment to God will not allow me to align myself with people who hate God. My commitment to God will not allow me to align myself with people who defy God. My my commitment to God will not allow me to lock arms with people who brazenly break God's law and sneer about it. My commitment to God won't allow me to lock arms with people who sneer at the idea of worshiping God. It would be like, it would be like, I couldn't be friends with you if you badmouth constantly my wife. Because the primary commitment I have to a person on this earth is my commitment to my wife. So if you hate my wife and you badmouth my wife, I'm not interested in being friends with you. Because that would be a betrayal of my wife. Well, if that's true of our earthly relationships, how much more is that true with God? If my primary commitment is to God, that affects who I align my life with. I don't want to lock arms with people who hate the God who my love belongs to. I'm not going to spend all my time being shaped by people who despise the God that I'm living my life for. Okay, well, that's what David is describing here. He refuses to sit with people who despise God. Not only because if he did that, it would be little God, but also because if he did that, David knew it would affect him. Do you hear that? If you and I as followers of Jesus lock arms with, closely align ourselves with, our biggest friend groups are with people who defy God and live at war with God, not only is that belittling toward God, that also inevitably affects our own hearts. Here's the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. This is just a blunt sort of statement. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. So if you surround yourself with people who see life through a godless worldview, it will inevitably start affecting you so that you'll start seeing life through that same distorted lens. I mean, do you wonder why it is, man, that you keep coming back and you want to do right and your heart's going to belong to the Lord and the next thing you know, you're, you're right back, going back into a lifestyle, drifting away from God. You, you constantly align yourself with people who could care less about God. Well, that's the warning that David is giving us here. Listen to this C.S. Lewis quote. Lewis said, I'm inclined to think a Christian would be wise to avoid where he decently can any meeting with people who are bullies, lascivious, cruel, dishonest, spiteful, and so forth. And I like how he explains it. Not because we're too good for them. In a sense, because we're not good enough. We're not good enough to cope with all the temptations, nor clever enough to cope with all the problems which an evening spent in such society produces. David was not going to cozy up with those sorts of people. And that might have been what got David in trouble in the first place. Because listen how Peter explains it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Peter says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Here's what they were before God saved them. We spent enough of our past, Peter says, doing these sorts of things. We walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, 
revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange. He's saying this to the church, the Christians. They think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. You get what Peter's saying? Peter's saying, yeah, we used to live that way, but now God has saved us and he's brought us out of that. But Peter says there are going to be some people who treat you like you're the weirdo because you won't join in in their debauchery. They're going to go, come on, man, why, what do you mean you're not going to join in with us? And not only will they act like you're the weirdo because you won't join in, Peter says they'll get angry with you because you won't join in. They'll speak evil of you because you won't join them in their sin. So you're going to face heavy pressure to cave on this. But what David is saying here is important. This is why it's so important that you make sure you're living life with people who are influencing your habits and shaping your values in a way that draws you to Christ. Okay, so there's a group of people that he, he refuses to align with. But then on the other hand, there's another group that he can't wait to be around. Verses 6 through 8 now. He says, I wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with a voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Now, all the, all the activities that David is describing here are things they would do when they would go to the tabernacle or later on when they would go to the temple. There were ceremonial washings that they would go through and they would go to the altar and bring their thanksgiving sacrifices and they would gather around the altar and they would sing praise to God. And David is saying that's where he wanted to be. Notice now, he's not just willing to endure that. David doesn't just say, I'm going to do all this because it's my duty as a follower of God. David actually uses the word loves. He says he loves it. He delights in being with God's people to worship God. Man, I hope that's true of you. I hope Lord's Day worship for you isn't just some cold, stoic sense of duty or obligation. I hope there's something in you that says, yes, like David, yes, I love it. These are my people. It does my heart good to hear them sing these hymns. It does my heart good to hear them pray. It, it helps me to know that they are bearing my burdens. It helps me to get together with God's people and for us together to bend our lives under the authority of God's Word. It helps me to be reminded of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. It, it's what God reshapes and recharges me with every week. I hope there's something in you that, like David that goes, yes, I love it. If, if all this is, if all this is for you every week is just some cold, dutiful thing, something is off in your heart. Because that's not what it was for David. David loved this. He longed for this, he says. And make sure you see the connection, how important all of this is. David wasn't going to surround himself with people who hated God because he knew not only that that belittled God, but also that that would have an impact on him. You surround your, live your life with people who live in opposition to God. It's going to erode away at your faith. It'll shape you. But listen, here's the good news. It also works the other way. So if you surround yourself with, if you live your life with people who love God, 
If your closest friendships are with people who know and love the Lord, that will also shape you. Being with God's people, including being with God's people in corporate worship, is one of the things God uses to fashion us as His people. Listen to the way James Smith said this. He writes, Worship, talking about our corporate worship, worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give Him our praise. We're called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Okay, so David delights in gathering with God's people. That's the group he is attracted to. And then one last thing, verses 9 and 10, about these attractions. David says to God, Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hand is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. Do you see what David's saying? David didn't gather with those who hated God. And so David is now praying that God won't gather him up with them in judgment. So David not only had different friends from these people, he also had a different future than these people. David is confident that he will not be included in this group of uh, unjust, immoral people when they are swept away by God in judgment. Okay, that leads us to the final point. Number five, there is continuation. Look at verse 11 and you'll see what I mean. David says, But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. Now do you see what's different there? Look back up to verse 1 where David says, For I have walked in my integrity. Do you see how that's past tense? So in verse 1, David is looking back and David is saying, Lord, I have been walking in integrity before you. But what's different now in verse 11? David says, but as for me, I will walk. So the tense is changing now. So he started it by looking back, and now he's ending the psalm by looking forward. He's ending the psalm by saying, Lord, here's my commitment. I'm going to continue to live my life with integrity before you. He was being pressured and he was being slandered and he was being persecuted, but David was not going to buckle. So it's like he comes to the end of this psalm and he is just renewing his commitment to walk with integrity before God. And that's probably a good thing for us to do every weekend because some of you, you, you probably are in a work environment or you're in a school environment where you're surrounded by people and it, and it is kind of trying to chisel away at your faith every week. It is trying to chisel away at your commitment to God. And you need reminders like David where we come every week to say, Lord, I am afresh renewing my commitment. I'm going to live a life of integrity before you. That's what David is pledging before God as we come to the end of this psalm. But you'll notice he doesn't have any illusion that he'll be able to do that perfectly. And that's why he says, Lord, redeem me and show me mercy. 
And then verse 12, here's how he ends it. My foot stands in an even place. Now, why, why is his foot standing in an even place? What did he tell us earlier? What are his eyes fixed on? What is he taking every step depending on? His eyes are fixed on God's steadfast love, and he's taking every step depending on God's faithfulness. And so because of that, David's foot is in a solid ground. He's not going to slip. He's not going to give ground. He's got firm footing. And then he says in the last phrase, in the congregations, I will bless the Lord. So notice what happens. This psalm that starts with David being slandered and mistreated and persecuted, you now come to the last line and it ends with David with the congregation praising God. It's like a change. The way Charles Spurgeon said it is that, that saints sometimes have to sing themselves into happiness. And that's what seems to happen with David here because he starts this beat down and he feels persecuted and he feels abused. But as David starts remembering God's steadfast love and as David contemplates God's faithfulness, by the time you come to the end of this psalm, David's disposition has changed. And so it ends with David singing praise to God. And just a, an encouragement as we close. You, you would do yourself, Christian, a lot of good when you're having those times where you're struggling and those seasons where you're suffering. You would do yourself good if you would shut off the television and if you would shut off the podcast, and if you would turn off the country music station or whatever you've been listening to, and if you will spend some time listening to music that reminds you of where you stand before God because of the gospel, and if you will sing, and if you'll gather with God's people, and if you will sing. There is a powerful work God does in His people when we come together as His people and we lift our voices together in song. God shapes us. So David ends the psalm by saying, in the congregation, I will bless the Lord. So let's bow together for a word of prayer.